Well, could I ask you to take your Bibles to, uh, and turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. And uh, we're going to be looking today uh, just at the second part. I didn't get to the whole of chapter 6 last week, and so we're going to look uh, at verses 9 uh, to 17 this morning. So please just uh, keep that open, um, and we are going to read it as we work our way through the passage a little bit later. It was read to us last week. Uh, Last week we considered the opening of the first four seals, and uh, today we look at the fifth and the sixth seal. So we're continuing uh, in this chapter six today. It's really part two uh, of living victoriously in a dangerous world. Uh, And as I think back to to last Sunday, um, I was struck by how actually we are able to identify the activities of those four horsemen of the apocalypse so clearly in just the last two weeks. If you think back of of what's been going on in this week, um, all that's going on between Russia and the Ukraine, we've seen afresh just in this last week the activities of that second and the third and the fourth horsemen uh, as they ride out to slay believers for their witness to Christ as persecution breaks out both in the Ukraine and in Russia, by the way, towards Christians. People have to flee their homes and have to leave their country. And then we have seen on the news this week the general trouble and and suffering uh, and economic hardship and famine and disease that is caused by war. So we've seen that in the past week, but at the same time, looking back to last week, we witnessed in a most wonderful way the, the sovereign activity of the, fourth, the, fourth horse, uh, sorry, of the first horseman, um, of Jesus Christ uh, on his white horse who rides out across the earth in gospel conquest. And we saw that so clearly last week as seven people shared their testimonies of the power and the saving grace of Jesus Christ in their lives. And so I hope that as you've just thought back over this past week, uh, that you've been encouraged in God's word as we considered the four horsemen, uh, but one captain. Now, there are three more seals to be broken on the scroll of God's eternal decrees, the scroll in the the right hand of God that is then taken by the lamb that was slain, the lamb standing as he begins to open the seals. And so we're going to consider the fifth and the sixth seal today, and then you're going to have to wait a couple weeks because the seventh seal is delayed until chapter eight, and so we'll get to that then. But last week we considered the four horsemen and one captain in verses 1 to 8, and now we continue today, and we're just going to carry on in the second place today, and I want us to see great persecution, but still one captain in verses 9 to 11. So let's read verses 9 to 11 together. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So we we come back again this morning to this whole subject of persecution uh, in the fifth seal, and particularly the subject this morning of those who have been martyred for their faith. 
And, and so you might be asking, well, hang on, what is different here in the fifth seal to what we considered back when the second seal was open in, in verse 3 and 4, when that fiery red horse was, was given permission to remove peace uh, from the earth so that believers uh, would be slain or slaughtered uh, with the great sacrificial knife of persecution. And I would propose that what we have here in verses 9 to 11 is really just the, the heavenly perspective on what takes place in verse 3 and 4 on the earth. The focus in the first four seals was what is taking place on the earth, the, the earthly perspective or the earthly experience uh, of God's eternal decrees for all of history. As the gospel is proclaimed to all nations, as believers are persecuted and martyred, the world faces all kinds of struggles and suffering and trouble and death because of sin and God's curse on the earth. Now, I know that it's hard to get our heads around when we see all the evil and the suffering in the world. It's hard to perhaps get our heads around the fact that God is sovereign over these horsemen of persecution and suffering and death, that they are under his divine control and purposes. But let me just remind you of what Paul says to us in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It's written in the context of suffering. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. For creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So the scripture is clear that going right back to Genesis chapter 3, when God cursed the earth, that all of this created world around us has been subjected, Paul says, to futility, to vanity, to frustration, to corruption and decay. Uh, just read the book of Ecclesiastes uh, and you will see that everything in this world, when disconnected from God, is meaningless. It's vanity. And Paul tells us in Romans 8 that this subjection to futility was a decree of God. So that all of creation is groaning along with us who are God's children. We are groaning as in the pains of childbirth in great expectation for a day when we are going to be set free. Set free from, from bondage, set, set free from corruption, and we're going to experience the fullness of the glory of God's perfect new creation in the new heavens and the new earth. And so Paul goes on in Romans 8 verse 23, and he says, and so not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we eagerly await uh, for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And so as we come back to, to Revelation then and to this fifth seal this morning, if we had not been told what we we're about to, to look at in these verses, we see that this truth of God's sovereignty and, and purposes in subjecting all creation to futility, it has a glorious purpose. It has a purpose which is preparing in us and, and growing in us the hope 
of glory when Jesus returns. And so in God's great condescension to to us in our frailty and our weakness as humans, he reveals to us in this fifth seal what happens to those who die as believers in Christ before Jesus returns. And especially, as we will see this morning, what happens to those who die suddenly and untimely deaths as martyrs for the sake of Christ. Now let me remind you again who Jesus was initially writing to, who he was speaking to in this revelation. And so please turn back to chapter 2. Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 8. This is to the church in Smyrna. And, and look at what Jesus says to the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And what a comfort that must have been for this church in Smyrna and actually also the the next church in Pergamum in, in chapter 2 verse 12 to 17. To read now when they get to chapter 6 that these four horsemen have one captain that it is Jesus on a white horse, and as he conquers, they too will conquer. Jesus has just told them in these verses that they're going to face the pale green horse of suffering and tribulation. They're going to face the the black horse of persecution and poverty, and they're going to face the fiery red horse of martyrdom And then he's told them in verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 13, that this suffering and this persecution and this martyrdom is coming from the devil. But Jesus is the one who has died and come to life. He's been given the crown of God's rule and authority, and he will in turn give a crown of life to those who remain faithful to him. As he rides out to conquer, those who remain faithful to him will also conquer. And so as these churches then waited in great expectation for the return of Jesus, what happened? They faced exactly what Jesus said. They witnessed friends and family members being tortured and being put to death for their faith. And now in chapter 6, Jesus reveals from his heavenly throne room exactly what has happened to all those who have died in Christ. Chapter 6, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. What an amazing comfort it is to know that a believer who dies in Christ 
Although their bodies may have been burned at the stake or perhaps had been torn to pieces by wild beasts in those Roman arenas, their souls immediately were transferred into the very presence of God. Remember we spoke last week in verse 3 and 4 about those who were slain. And I made it clear that this was, this was sacrificial language that was being used there. And here again, we see this sacrificial language being brought through into the heavenly realm where we are told that the souls of those who had been slain were found where? Under the altar. And this is a, a clear reference to the altar of, of the burnt offering of sacrifice in the temple where as the animals were sacrificed, their blood would have flown under the altar. We know that the Bible links blood to life. And so here we see not the blood of those saints under the altar, but their souls under the altar in the presence of God in heaven. And we see in verse 10 that these souls cry out in a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Can I just issue a word of caution here? We need to be careful to not read into this something that is not there. These souls under the altar are not sad that they've been killed. They're not wishing to go back to earth. And so they're crying out in anger and bitterness for personal revenge. Now we know that in heaven there is no pain or sadness or tear. There is no sinful attitude of, of bitterness or revenge there are no regrets because in heaven we see God perfectly and we see his purposes on earth perfectly. And so what we have here is the cry for God to be glorified through justice. Let's just think about injustice for a moment and think particularly about the injustice of martyrdom for a minute. What is a martyr? A martyr is a person who was living for God and for others. A person who sought to love God and love his neighbor. A martyr is a person who was trying to reach his neighbor with the good news of the gospel so that they would not perish, that they would turn to Christ for salvation. And a martyr is a person who, who honors God with all of their lives, who obeys the law, who helps the poor and the needy, and who puts others first. So when the people whom these Christians are trying to love and trying to bless and, and trying to, to save, when those people then put these Christians to death in the most terrible and cruel ways imaginable, this is earthly injustice in its worst form. But as we think about that, every martyr who dies is but a faint shadow of the greatest injustice ever committed. The injustice, in a sense, that we've just remembered around the Lord's table this morning, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. He was the perfect God-man who was put to death by the very people that he created. The very people he came to love and save put him to death in a most violent and cruel way. And so for God to be God, for God to be holy, God must be vindicated as just, as good. He cannot allow injustice to go unpunished. And so these saints are calling for God to act against his enemies. Please remember that the Bible does not say that there is no place for vengeance. 
What the Bible does say in Romans 12 verse 9 is, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Only God is the righteous judge. And so as, as the just on, on, and so, sorry, just as on earth as in heaven, we are not to avenge ourselves, not on earth, and these saints in heaven are not seeking to avenge themselves. They are leaving justice and judgment and vengeance to God. He alone has the right to bring justice on the wicked, and he will do it. Notice that their prayer in verse 10 is focused on God's character and his glory. He is the sovereign Lord. He is holy and true. They are calling on God by pointing out his righteous character and calling on him to judge the wicked in justice. And then we see so wonderfully what these saints are given. They are given a white robe, firstly, and this is the robe of, of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel, that when we trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, we receive a righteousness from God, which is by faith. This speaks of, of perfect acceptance before God. We're going to spend a bit more time in chapter 7 looking at this white robe. Then we see, secondly, that they are given rest. While the souls of those in glory are immediately at peace in the presence of God, they need to wait. They need to wait for the redemption of their bodies. And so they are told to wait just a little while longer for the end is near. And then thirdly, they are given assurance. They're given a white robe, they're given rest, and they're given assurance. They're told that their death was, was part of God's perfect plan. And he also has purposed that other Christians will still be martyred for the name of Christ. And when that number is complete, then God will act. Their death was not random. Their death did not catch God by surprise. They are given this wonderful assurance. So that's the scene in heaven. Uh, how are we then meant to apply this fifth seal to ourselves as Christians here in Johannesburg in 2022? And I think we are to recognize that the season of relative peace and freedom and liberty that we've enjoyed for most, if not all, of our lives as Christians in South Africa is certainly not the normal experience for Christians over the history of the church, and it is also not the normal experience for the majority of Christians in the world today. For us to think about real persecution, real suffering for the name of Jesus, that's rather strange. And I doubt that any, maybe a few of you have, but I doubt that most of us have ever given any meaningful consideration to the reality of actually being put to death for Jesus. But this is not normal. And we should be thinking carefully about getting ready for this same persecution to reach us in our lifetime. I think one of the tactics of Satan is spiritual complacency, spiritual comfort zones, to think that what we experience as Christians today and as we go about our week is normal. 
And what this then means practically is that we need to start consciously living our lives with an eternal perspective, thinking very carefully and purposefully about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We need to see that that everything in this world needs to be in its proper place in relation to eternity. We need to realize that this life is but a vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, and it's only that which is done for Christ which will last, which will have any real value into eternity. And I think then secondly, as we think to apply this, all this talk here about being slain, being a sacrifice, this is so foreign to our comfortable thinking as individualistic, westernized Christians. And yet the Bible says that this attitude of of sacrifice should be the normal state of existence for every Christian. Have you noticed that the Bible does not say that a life of Christian worship is a life of Sunday singing and worship music in your car? Paul says in Romans 12 verse 1, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, in other words, in light of the gospel, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That is your spiritual worship. Our true worship of God is by offering all of our lives as a living sacrifice to God. And so we need to get very real, and I think we need to get very honest with ourselves here this morning. If you are not living your relatively easy and relatively comfortable life as a living sacrifice to God, do you really think that you are ready to suffer great persecution and even death for the name of Christ? Don't be fooled to think that I would be ready to die for Jesus when I'm not ready to make any real sacrifices in my life for Jesus at the moment. Let's let's get very real. If Russia came marching into Johannesburg to shut down the churches, don't think that you would be ready to stand in the streets to defend the name of Jesus as the Russian tanks are, are rolling towards you when you are not even willing to defend the name of Jesus to that girl in your class at varsity or that arrogant colleague at work who blasphemes the name of Christ and curses God in your presence and you do nothing. But when Russia's tanks come, man, I'm going to die for Jesus. We're fooling ourselves. Please don't romanticize the souls under the altar. They are there because they lived life on earth, according to Romans 12, verse 1. The Bible is clear, 2 Timothy 3:12. All who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The real challenge of the application in this fifth seal is not, will I be found under the altar one day? Now, the real challenge is this. Am I living under the altar today? Is every day of my life a living sacrifice to Jesus? Is your life a living sacrifice to God? Are you, young person, 
Are you living under the altar? Parents, are you living under the altar? Men and women, are you living under the altar? Finally then for today, we need to see what happens when the sixth seal is opened. And so we see then in the third place, terrible judgment, but still one captain. Now, these verses are meant to bring us to an end of ourselves, and we're going to read them in a moment. The first five seals have been describing God's decrees and and purposes across all of church history between the first and the second coming of Christ. This sixth seal now reveals what will take place at the end of the world. This is a description of the return of Jesus to judge the wicked on what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. And here John's vision reveals very significantly that the day of the Lord is one of cosmic proportions. And the language we're going to see here is is graphic, it's apocalyptic, and, and it's bright, and it's clear. It jumps off the page with absolute clarity. But I want you to see, and and as we get there, I want to just lay a bit of an Old Testament context that what John is about to reveal to us about the judgment day is in direct unity with much of the Old Testament's predictions of this great and terrible day of the Lord. Let me just give you a couple. Joel chapter 2 verse 10. Listen to these words. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. His camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Isaiah chapter 2 verse 12, for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away the idols of silver and gold, which they made for themselves to worship. They'll give them to the moles and the bats as they enter the caves of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. We can read in Amos chapter 8 and Isaiah 24 and Zephaniah chapter 1 and Matthew chapter 24, these same themes being echoed again and again. So now look with me at verse 12 to 14. And what we firstly see is how all of creation as we know it will be brought to a climactic end. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, Any one of these symbols is meant to instill terror in our hearts as as each one effectively brings this world to a cataclysmic end. Think about a great earthquake as as the crust of the earth is is split open and, and devours everything in its path as buildings and all the construction achievements of humanity topple into the dust. 
Then the sun becoming black and the moon turning to the color of blood would end all life on earth in the space of a day. The stars of the sky falling to the earth is a picture of immediate annihilation. The sky vanishing and every mountain being leveled and the waters of the sea swallowing up the land is, is a picture of the end of the world. But I don't believe we are meant to to dwell on each symbol individually or to try and figure out too much what each one means. This is typically apocalyptic language and collectively it does a great job to make one simple point. When the terrible wrath of God is poured out on the earth, God's judgment will be irreversible and his destruction of the wicked will be complete. So I want to just move on because we need to remember that that all of creation, which is the focus of verses 12 to 14, has been subjected to futility because Adam sinned, not because creation sinned, but because Adam sinned, because humanity sinned. And so while all of creation is affected by God's curse, God's wrath on this final day is not against the mountains and the stars and the sky. God's judgment is against sinful humanity against those who've rejected the gospel, against those who've persecuted Jesus Christ and his church, against those who've either directly or indirectly not bowed the knee to Jesus on his white horse. And so we see in verses 15 to 17 that this final day of judgment will be universal. There's not one person outside of those who are united to Christ who will escape this judgment. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For that great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Here we see that every category of humanity is included in this terrible day of judgment. Kings of the earth, that's rulers and, and royalty and presidents, the great ones of society, that's CEOs and, and business leaders and politicians, generals with all their military might and powerful dictators, the rich, we are told, industry tycoons, trust fund babies, Bitcoin millionaires, the powerful, the, the influential, the famous, and then everyone else, slave or free, that's all the Joe Soaps, just like you and me. The day of the Lord will be the great leveler, the grand equalizer, where every human being outside of Jesus will be treated equally by God in holy justice. And what is clear is that Kings will hide in the caves next to slaves. The rich will hide in the ground next to the poor. And all will cry out for the mountains to collapse on them and crush them because of the fear of having to stand before the face of the holy God who sits on the throne and before the wrath of the Lamb. I want you to see that the Lamb who was slain 
who is the Lamb standing in the presence of heaven. He is the Lion of Judah. He is King David's greatest son. He is the rider on a white horse whose name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. And notice how John ends the vision in verse 17. Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? This is not a question that's expecting you to go and figure out the answer. The scriptures are clear. No one will stand. Psalm 76 says, Who can stand before you when your anger is aroused, when the heavens, sorry, from the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still? Nahum chapter 1 verse 6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. Rocks are broken into pieces. An overflowing flood will make a complete end of the adversaries and he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Malachi chapter 3 verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. The point of John's vision is abundantly clear. If you are outside of Christ on that day, you will not stand. You will be utterly consumed by the wrath of the Lamb. But fortunately in that question, who can stand, there is a glimmer of gospel hope. For we read the very same words in Psalm 130. Psalm 130 verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, O Lord, should keep a record of wrongs, O Lord, who could stand? There's the question. But the psalmist goes on, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, there is one group of people who will stand on that day, who will be raised to life and who will meet Jesus in the air and it is those who have been forgiven. It's those who've willingly bowed the knee to the lamb who was slain in their place, those who've repented of their sins and trusted in the lamb who rose from the dead to be their savior. There's a great irony in the gospel. And it is this, that those who willingly fall down prostrate before the Lamb in this life will stand before him on that great day, forgiven and justified. But those who stand before him in arrogance and defiance in this life will be crushed by him on that day. So let me close by taking you to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. Maybe you want to follow along with me in your Bibles. 2 Peter chapter 8, verse 13. Sorry, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 13. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, that's the promise of his return, as some count slowness, 
but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, he says, verse 10, the day of the Lord, there it is again, will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Will you be destroyed by the wrath of the Lamb when the old earth and the old heavens is destroyed? Or will you be waiting eagerly to stand in his presence for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth? The difference, the dramatic eternal difference depends on what you do with the Lamb now. So I pray that if you have not yet bowed the knee to the Lamb who was slain, that you will do so today. Please do not leave here today until you are sure that in that great and terrible day of the Lord that you will be able to stand forgiven. That day may come today. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you again for these portions in your word, terrifying portions in your word that cause us to consider this great and terrible day of the Lord. But every one of these passages of Scripture is the evidence of your grace. It's the evidence of your love because as Peter says, you, are, you have not yet returned because you are patient, not wishing for anyone to perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I pray, Lord, that anyone here today, anyone watching online who has not yet bowed the knee to the Lamb, that your Holy Spirit will not leave them alone, that you will convict them of their sin, that you will convict them of their utter inadequacy to stand in your presence should you return today, and that they would bow the knee and acknowledge Jesus Christ and Him alone as their Lord and Savior today. Lord, for those of us who are saved, those of us who are in Christ, what sort of life should we be living in the light of your return, won't you make us people who are eager for holiness and righteousness and good works, eager to be your ambassadors here on this earth, whatever the cost? May we be ready, not only to stand for you in this day against all that is evil, but that we would stand in your presence, clothed in the righteousness of Christ when Jesus returns. Help us, we pray, to respond rightly and faithfully to your word today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.